right, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We began our study of Romans last week, if you will, uh, as I spent uh, oh, about 40 minutes or so uh, giving an introduction to the book. Uh, for those of you who have been at Discover for a while, uh, you know I believe that introductions are important because it gives us a background of the author. Uh, it speaks of who the author is writing to, why the author is writing this letter in the first place, what's taking place, what's going on. These are important things to know. And therefore, doing an introduction uh, is going to help us to see, it's going to help us to understand as much as we possibly can. And so when we begin our study like we are today, our eyes will be open, and what is said in the lines of Scripture will hopefully make a little more sense. I'm sure most of you already know that way too often uh, Christians today will grab one verse out of the Bible and they will interpret it based on their own current circumstances as if it was written yesterday, as if God emailed me yesterday, and I'm taking that verse and saying, what am I to do with that today? Well, let me just tell you, folks, that's not how we interpret the Word of God or apply it either. Instead, we have to have a historical context, therefore, to have a better rendering uh, of what the author was actually trying to tell us, okay? Well, this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 1. And what is Paul's greeting to the church? Now, generally, uh, if you look at uh, Paul's other letters, all the other letters he has written to the churches as well as individuals, you'll notice that his greetings are not very long. Typically, three verses, maybe they'll stretch to four. Here in Romans, his greeting is actually seven verses. And in these seven verses, he makes some points that are, let's just say, a little bit more complex than your typical greeting. And so we're obviously going to want to spend a little more time on that. It's not just Paul saying, hey, how you doing? It's Paul. I hope things are well. It goes a little bit beyond that. Now, for those of you who wonder if you want to know why Paul went beyond his typical greeting, obviously we don't know the exact answer to that. But, number one, it is possible that Paul is setting the tone for what is to come in the first eight chapters of this letter. Okay? Uh, the first half, or eight chapters of this letter. And that is an in-depth look at the gospel, if you will, or an in-depth look at soteriology, or what we call the doctrine of salvation. And number two, his greeting is possibly longer because, as I stated last week, Paul was not the one who started this church, okay? And at this point, he has never visited the church in Rome, and therefore he has no prior connection. He is starting cold, if you will. He is starting from scratch with this church, and therefore, he might just simply have more to say in preparation for when he gets into the heart of this letter. It's not like he's written them four times, he's hung out in Rome for three or four months, and they built that relationship. That hasn't happened. 
Okay? So there's a little more involved here. And so with that, I hope you're open to Romans 1. Let's begin by, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're not going to get through all seven verses, but let's read verses 1 through 7. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin this morning in here in verse 1, Paul starts with identifying himself for who he is. He just simply says, Paul. Okay? And then he, he ultimately begins this letter by stating that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Right? He just says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now that word servant is, is the Greek word doulos. And many times it is actually translated as a bond servant or, uh, or a slave. Doulos is many times spoken of as a slave. Now, at the writing uh, of this letter, which was in, give or take, but right about 57 AD, there were millions of slaves. Some even say half the country, 50%, were actually slaves. Now, under the Roman Empire, that was uh, very typical, and it was also very typical for these slaves uh, to be forced labor. Okay? They had no choice, if you will. And this is an important little point here, because I think so many times we as Christians, uh, and others as well, we, we look at the word slave and we apply it to our generation or what we think it is. You know, you and me might look at it and say, oh, well, that's just like the Civil War. You know, and that's how we interpret it, okay? But we shouldn't do that. I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament, and you can see that some people were slaves because they literally sold themselves into slavery because they owed money. They were in debt, okay? Doing so, you know what? They got, they got rid of their debt. They had three meals a day. They had a place to stay and so forth. There were obviously others who were servants, okay, really doing the same stuff as a slave, you just didn't have the horrors of slavery. You didn't have the, the beatings and all the things that we think of as slave. But as far as what they were doing, it was the same thing. And then, of course, you do have what we have here, which is, generally speaking, forced labor. Okay? But don't always look at the word slavery as the same. You always want to go back and check out the culture of what's taking place. But with slavery, with servitude uh, being uh, so widespread at this time, Everyone understood the principle. Everyone was familiar with the concept of a master and a servant. 
Okay? It's kind of like in the New Testament. Uh, when you see the Gospels, a lot of times Jesus spoke of um, the agrarian culture. Everybody understood the agrarian culture. Everybody understood agriculture and growing their own crops and things. So it's easy to use uh, those because everybody understood. And here, everybody would understand the concept of having a master and a servant. Now, with that being the case, there are many people who believe that Paul's statement really doesn't have a reference to that, but being that he is a Jew, that he is more focused on God's law. In other words, there was Roman law. Rome ruled the world at this point. There was Roman law, and of course, there was God's law. And even though in both circumstances, the worker was subservient okay, to their masters, Paul's was willingly. He was willingly. So it's possible that the heart of Paul here is actually coming from Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 21, God lays out here a plan, his rule of law, for owning a Hebrew slave. Okay? After six years of owning a Hebrew slave, you had to set them free. All right? But... There were times when that slave slash servant would declare his love for his master and he didn't want to go free. Okay, And that ought to tell you right there, when you go back to the Old Testament, when it says the word slave, it wasn't how you think about it. Because if, if I'm a true slave of what you think, I'm out of there. Man, I'm set free. I'm gone. But some of them say, no, I, I love these people. I love my master and I want to stay. Okay? So what would happen is, if they did want to stay after six years, uh, their ear was pierced with an awl, A-W-L, okay? And that would actually show or symbolize their willingness to serve. I want to stay here. I want to be under my master for more years than these six, okay? So moving forward with Paul, listen, Paul has no qualms saying that I am owned, I am bought, I am paid for by my master, Jesus Christ. I have given myself to the one who saved me from sin and therefore death or spiritual death. Paul believed that, Paul had lived that out, and I believe he has stated so right here at the beginning of this letter so they would know that whatever he is about to write, because they're just getting this letter, whatever he's about to write, what he's going to say is because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, because he is a servant of Christ. It's for that very reason alone of what he's going to say. So when they see the word servant, when they see the word doulos, maybe things go through their head, but Paul says, I am a, a, a willing servant of the Lord himself. Now, with that being first and foremost, you'll notice that Paul then moves from being a servant, okay, and now he tells the church that he was called to be an apostle, okay? There in verse 1, he goes from one right to the other, okay? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle just like that. Now, what's interesting here when I read this Normally speaking, the prideful human heart, which every one of us here understands, but the prideful human heart would want to speak of their authority first, right? 
But Paul does so secondly because I believe his commitment to follow Christ, his commitment to serve Christ was greater than the position that God has given him. Okay? And in other words, as important as it was being an apostle, what took precedence was how Paul's entire life was lived as a servant of Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice he talks about his servitude first, then it goes to his authority as an apostle. And so that being said, Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. Okay? No, he did not say I was given that title by my local church. He says I was called to be an apostle. Okay? This is what gave Paul the authority to say what he says, to write what he writes. Now, I'm sure that the church in Rome had heard of Paul. Remember, Paul didn't start this church. He's never visited, been a part of this church. He's been in Rome in prison. But I'm sure they have heard of Paul. But when Paul was about to write what you and I would call 16 chapters, considered by uh, most modern-day scholars to be one of the greatest theological dissertations ever written, it needs to be declared that, number one, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, and number two, that very same Christ has called me to be an apostle. He's called me to be his representative, his ambassador, the one that he has sent out into this world. And that, that simple declaration of I'm an apostle should tell the church in Rome, you need to listen, you need to pay attention. Okay? I mean, Christ himself said in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this man, speaking of Saul slash Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Folks, Paul could have just as well said the same thing to the church in Rome that he said to the church of Galatia. In chapter 1, verse 1 in Galatians, Paul says, Listen, I am not sent from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Folks, claiming to be an apostle, getting a letter from an apostle is a big to-do. It is. And of course, this is why it's so sad uh, of all the nonsense that we have going on in the church today. Okay, let me just be clear, folks. There are not modern-day apostles. You see them on the label, or you're, maybe you're flipping through your TV set. It's the apostle so-and-so. It's this, you know, you, this is, they give themselves these titles. There are no modern-day apostles. And, of course, I'm not going to get into the whole subject matter this morning. It's not the right time for it. But let me just say this. The qualifications you have at the end of Acts chapter 1 cannot be met by anybody today. Okay? Number two, in Ephesians chapter 2, which we went through not too long ago, it clearly tells us that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Did you catch that? 
There's only one foundation, folks. The foundation of the church only needed to be laid once. The foundation of any building is only laid once. I don't care how tall of a building you got. Whatever the tallest building in the world is, I have no idea. Whatever it is, it has one foundation. You and I are in the 21st century. Let's just call it the 21st floor. There's still only one foundation when you're building on top of that foundation. It's important we understand that. To quote Justin Peters, there, are, there were 12 apostles and the quota had already been filled, but thank you for applying. You have a lot of people doing that today. All right, go back into Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I'm a servant of, of Christ Jesus. I am called to be an apostle. And now he says, and set apart for the gospel of God. When Paul says that I am set apart for the gospel of God, those words set apart mean just that. I'm not going to give you some fancy answer. It literally means to be separated. It means to be uh, excluded. It means to be marked off. Okay? God said, you are the one that I am giving this position to. Okay, once again, not just anybody is an apostle. Not just anybody is being set apart by God. God had a specific purpose for Paul, and as you know, it was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it was to the Gentiles, even though he spoke with everybody, but it was to share the gospel, but mostly to the Gentiles. I thought of this. You can think of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, and this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, you, speaking to the nation of Israel, are to be holy to me because I am the Lord and I am holy. And listen, he says, I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. God chose the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. Nobody else. Okay? That very same principle can be applied here to Paul. Paul didn't just fall into this. Okay? Paul wasn't handing out his resume and just happened to get the job. Okay? Turn back, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. I'm sure many of you know that. Acts chapter 9. Because this is where this took place. Okay? This is not hidden. This isn't Paul saying, hey, in a dark alley when no one was looking at 3 a.m., God approached me, stuck around the corner so nobody else could see, you know, go through this kind of stuff. Oh, it was, that's not how it happened. Okay? Now, remember, uh, Paul wasn't just a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee, right? And therefore, he felt, humanly speaking, that he was set apart for a life of strict observance to the Jewish laws and customs. And with this calling, Paul was not going to allow the followers of Jesus to have any negative effect on what he did. Okay? Now, while you're there in Acts chapter 9, just stay there. 
I'm going to read from Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 is saying the same thing. It's pretty much Paul giving his testimony of Acts chapter 9 to King Agrippa. Okay? In Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, talking to King Agrippa, Paul says, I too, or I also, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Okay? Now I go back to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, kind of picking up. He says, meanwhile, Saul, as we just kind of read, he had a beef with Christians, didn't he? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he may take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Okay, so here we have, stop right there real quick. Here we have a very specific calling to Saul of Tarsus. Okay, by God to Saul. Not to Israel, not to Jerusalem, not to his household, just to Saul. Okay, so read verses four through six. So it says, all of a sudden, chapter three, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, verse 4, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and I am sorry, and you will be told what you must do. This is kind of personal, isn't it? This is very personal. Okay, so here you have this going on. Also, so Paul now is going to be taken into the city. Is going to be taken to this man named Ananias. Of course, Ananias is going to say, "Whoa, hey, sorry. hey, hold on a second. Really, Paul, Saul? You kidding me? Right?" But look at verse fifteen. But Jesus, or I'm sorry, but the Lord said to Ananias, "Go, this man, this is Saul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and to their kings and before the people of Israel." Then he says, "I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake." Folks, there's even more, e- even testifying to this. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul said, God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul went back even a little further there. He he went back before Acts chapter 9. He says, you know what? God called me from birth. 
And by his grace, what we read there in Acts chapter 9 took place. And God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I can be sent out and preach to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, if you kept going there in Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 7, speaking of the other apostles we call the twelve, Paul said that they agreed, they agreed with Paul, and that he had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, folks, Paul had once, as we already saw, had been completely dedicated to stand opposed to the good news of Christ. But now, by God's grace and his mercy, his life work is to now further that very same gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came into this world, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world and to pay the sin debt. He died on a cross, okay, for those who would repent of their sins and turn to him in faith. And so, folks, before the Church of Rome reads this letter, a letter that is, that is chuck full of the gospel, that is chuck full of the doctrine of salvation, Paul says, listen, I want you to know God himself has set me apart to share this message with you. Usually, Paul had already went to the city, whatever that city may be, Nobody knew him. He shared the gospel. People would come to faith in Christ. They would start the church. Paul would teach them. Wow, normal stuff. Didn't happen here. And so Paul throws it out there in his greeting. He wants them to know who he is, his calling by God, and the authority that God has given to him. Now, as we move into verse 2, you'll notice the sentence carries on. Okay, Speaking of the gospel of God, Whoops, I guess I should get back there, huh? At the very end of verse 1, he says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. Now he says, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And I'll just read, regarding his son. So Paul's point here, folks, as he can just begins this letter, Paul's point to this church is that the good news that he is preaching, that they're going to begin to read as they're reading this letter, okay, is the same message, it's the same good news that came from the prophets of the Old Testament concerning God's Son. Okay? Now, folks, remember, once again, this is Paul's first interaction with this church. He didn't start the church, okay, he didn't hang out with them. He, he, he didn't write to them. He didn't go visit them. Okay, And therefore, he's emphasizing right here that the good news that he is sharing about Jesus, about the Messiah, about God's anointed son, he's saying, listen, I want you to know this. This didn't originate with me. Okay, This is not something that I thought up. It did not originate with me. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Some of you might know that Paul had been accused before of turning people away from what we would call the Old Testament. Paul was accused of turning people away from the Old Testament, away from Moses, the law, and the prophets. 
Okay, they would say, well, as we can read ourselves, I mean, how many times can you read in the New Testament, we are not under the law, we are not under the law, we are not under the law. We're under grace. It's not by works, right? Christ paid it all. We're not earning our way to do anything. And so a lot of these people would say, he's preaching against everything we stand for. Paul is saying, that's not the case. Okay? The message that I am teaching really is, is the old news of the Hebrew Scriptures. When it says Scriptures here, it's talking about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament written at that point. So he's, the old news, he's talking about the old Hebrew Scriptures that are now being fulfilled in Christ. Okay? Now, even though this might not mean a whole lot to the Gentiles in the church at Rome, and it, it was more Gentile than Jew. This might not mean a whole lot to the Gentiles in Rome, but it's saying a lot to these Jews who were probably weren't that learned at this point, and they've heard how stories of Paul's, uh, how he was opposed, if you will, to the Jewish scripture. This, this, this Paul character, whoever he is, he's speaking out against us. They've probably heard these kinds of things, okay? And so that being said, let's look at a couple of the other scriptures that deal with the very same subject matter, because notice Paul is saying, hey, I'm giving you the same good news that the prophets gave in the Old Covenant. It's nothing new, right? Turn over to Luke chapter 24 real quick. Luke 24. I don't think this is something we talk about too much. That's why I want to throw a little bit of this in here this morning. So Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. So just to kind of set you up here, Jesus had just risen from the grave. It's actually there at the very beginning of chapter 24. Okay? And at this point, Luke shares a story of how there are two people walking to a village called Emmaus. Okay? Jesus, at this point, he comes alongside of them and he asks what they're talking about. And at this point, they, they basically share their frustration at what has taken place with Jesus. They didn't recognize Jesus at this point. So Jesus is walking with them, and they're sharing their frustrations. What happened? We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one who's, who was to come. And then he was handed over to the chief priests. And now people, they go to the tomb, and there's nobody there. Their frustration level. So Jesus says, in verses 25, he says, how foolish you are. Oh, it's good to see you too, Jesus. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one, however you want to look at it, did he not have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. See what I'm getting at here? What Paul is saying here in Romans 1, you don't hear too much about the Old Testament scriptures of the coming Messiah, the Christ. 
But Jesus is saying here, hey, I just explained to these guys everything about me from the Old Testament, from the prophets, right? Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures had already spoken on what had just taken place. And he says, ultimately, and for that matter, you should have known that. These were your scriptures. You should know these things. Move forward to verse, same chapter, verses 44 to 47. Jesus said to them, he's talking to his disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. In other words, before his death. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus just said, all this stuff had to be fulfilled. What, what you're floored by was written about me from the law of Moses. It was written about me in, 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 in Proverbs, Psalms, the prophet, whatever. It's already there. And then it says, he opened, verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Are you getting this? Do you see where he's get this same understanding of, the, you know, some of us might today, might really, they, they talked about the Messiah, they talked about all these things in the Old Testament, seriously? And of course, this is Paul's point. Yeah, and I'm telling you, that I'm, I'm giving you the same thing. If you remember from what I, I mentioned last week, I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, which is a clear rendering of the gospel. And in that presentation, Paul said that Jesus died for our sins. You know the next few words? According to the scriptures. Okay, that he was buried and that he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Folks, they couldn't just grab their Bible and flip over to Ephesians. Didn't happen, didn't, couldn't, didn't exist at that point. See? All these things were according to the scriptures. Those were the Old Testament scriptures. Just like we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures, God breathed, so on and so on. It's, it's, we know, that means all scripture, but there wasn't, at that time it was written, there was no New Testament yet. So it goes back to just talking about the old. Another scripture uh, pointing this out is Acts chapter 8. You can turn there if you want, Acts chapter 8. If you don't want to turn there, do it anyway. Acts chapter 8. You see that authority there? Do you see how I, how I handle that? <laughs> Acts chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. You guys know this as well, but it's, it's important to point out when it comes to texts like these. Starting in verse 30, it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man, that man is an Ethiopian eunuch, he heard this man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. And by the way, this is Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was reading and he says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Now remember, he's sitting here at this point in history. He's reading this from what you and I is as if we were open to Isaiah 53. He's reading this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with this very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. Right? He goes to the Old Testament there. So when you go back to Romans 1, when Paul is talking about the gospel that is promised beforehand through the prophets concerning Jesus, no doubt, number one, Isaiah 53 is going to be one of those. Okay? Now, I am not going to take the time and go through all the scriptures in the Old Testament. Okay? But I just give you a few if you're somebody who wants to write them down. Number one, Genesis 3.15. You should know that. Uh, theologians call that the proto-evangelium, the first giving of the gospel, the first giving of the good news of what will take place. Obviously, Isaiah 53, 11. Personally, I would go back to the end of Isaiah 52 and just start reading. There's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. And by the way, starting in Jeremiah 31, 31, He'll tell you there's going to be a new covenant. Okay, so he begins right there. There's going to be a new covenant. And then, of course, he begins to, it's going to happen through, through the Messiah, the anointed one. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Zechariah 13, verse 1. And there are many more. You can certainly look some up. But it's important we understand when Paul is talking about, hey, I'm giving you all this information that came out of your Old Testament scriptures. I'm not going to give you anything new. Straight up God's word from, once again, what you and I would call the Old Testament. And so it's there. It's all throughout it. Even Jesus says, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you don't know this was all going to be told. This was going to happen. You should know this in the Old Testament scriptures. All right, back in Romans chapter 1, Let's start reading from the beginning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Okay? And then he says, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So he began in verse 3 mentioning his son, God's son. This is the person we're talking about, okay? Following that, he then speaks, as I just read, on his human nature, okay? His human nature on how he was a descendant of King David, okay? So Paul here is going to identify who this person Jesus is, 
okay, the one that he and the Old Testament scriptures have talked about. It's like he's saying, let me just get everything on the table here so we're all on the same page. Okay? Now, for you and me, as if we're reading the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of David numerous times. Okay? Throughout Scripture. Matter of fact, we can can go back to the very beginning there in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And this is when the angel spoke to Mary about her future son. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him uh, to the, he will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay. But being that we are coming off of verse two, and therefore we're still talking about what was told of the Old Testament scriptures. There's even though we're starting another verse, there's not a period there. We're still talking about that, okay? This is going to be important to the Jewish population in the church because they always believed that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And by the way, they did believe correctly. But they've always believed that. When they believe correctly, because that is exactly what the Old Testament says. God told this to David himself in 2 Samuel 7, 16. It's also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, and also brought up in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The term, the root of Jesse, Jesse is David's father, right? That's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, and Jesus applies that title to himself two times in the book of Revelation. Okay. So as to his human nature, if you will, Jesus' humanity, okay, Paul is saying here in verse 3, he was a descendant of David. Okay? We see this, of course, in the Gospels. You all know it. We see it through his birth. We see it through all that has taken place. The humanity right, of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, okay? We also know from Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks of, uh, of Jesus coming into this world, right, and putting on human likeness. He talked about him being God, starting in verse 6, I believe, but then he gets into putting on human likeness, his humanity, coming as a man. Okay, But now, going into verse 4, Paul leaves Jesus' humanity for a second, and he now alludes to his deity. Okay, Remember, Jesus has a human nature, and Jesus has a divine nature. See? Verse 4, not only was he a descendant of David, but and he says, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus came to this earth wrapped in a robe of flesh, if you will, fulfilling prophecy as to being a descendant of David. But now, Paul says, in addition to being the seed of David, 
okay, in addition to being the son of David, he says, through the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Holiness, and by the way, whom it says right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, raised Jesus from the dead. Let's just get that out there, right? It says that he was declared to be the Son of God. And that's his deity. He went from, uh, if you will, a son of David to a the son of God. Now Jesus, as you know, I hope anyway, has been in his very essence, in his very nature, he has always been God. Okay? We know this from John 1. We know this from Colossians 1. We know this from Hebrews 1. Those are easy to remember because they are chapter 1. Very clearly that he was always God. Okay? Even in John chapter 17, verse 5, uh, what people call Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus spoke of the glory he had before the world even begun. There's an issue of going into the eternality of Jesus, okay? But coming to this earth, as we just spoke of, his humanity, and submitting himself to the Father, he took the title of the Son of God. He's still God, but he submitted himself to the Father, and of course, all this was not just proven by his perfect life, his sinless life. It was also verified beyond a shadow of a doubt, as Paul says right here in this verse, by the fact that he conquered death. He conquered death, a feat that only God himself could accomplish. When that tomb was empty, when he appeared in a locked room with the disciples, remember that? Which means he had to come through the wall. When he was seen after the resurrection by over 500 people, it validated his claim to deity, as well as his earlier predictions in John chapter 2, as well as Matthew 16, that he would rise from the dead. He said this is going to happen. And that's why Paul closed that statement there in verse 4 with Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the Savior. That's what his name means. Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the promised one of Israel. And he is Lord. He is sovereign. He rules all. And Paul is basically saying, that is who I'm talking about. That's it. The same one talked about through the Old Testament Scriptures. His humanity, His deity, it is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Him. We're on the same page. That's how He began there. And we're not even through His greeting yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time as we got to begin this, this, um, this very in-depth study in Romans. So much was already said 
here just at the beginning, mentioning the fact that he's a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart the Old Testament scriptures, the fact of Christ's deity and his humanity, his, his, his risen from the grave. Lord, all this just in the first four verses of this book. Lord, I pray that we would understand these things and know these things. I pray that we would grow in these things. Lord, I, I, I don't want people to love a Jesus they know very little about. I don't want people to love the Word of God, and yet they know very little about it. Lord, teach us for the months coming in the truths of the Scripture, of Christ, of sin, of justification, sanctification, glorification, imputed righteousness, and on and on. Help us to understand your scripture, get to know you more and more every single day as we go through this book. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.